dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Yeah, so um, for those of you who are unaware, we hop on every Tuesday to do what we call Behind the Mic. And it's our desire to kind of bring you behind the scenes of what's going on and then also to build on the episodes that we've had, whether the previous week, the day before, whatever it may be. Um, look at this brother. Look at this boy. So I think my audio is messed up. Do I sound like I'm in a glass? Yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, let me, let me, let me, let me turn, turn me up in the headphones. Hang on. <laughs> what you telling me to do? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Anyway, we're good. We're good. What up, fam? What's good, fam? How you doing? I ain't talked to you all week. What's good? It's, it's, it's only Tuesday. <laughs> no, what? Yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> You feel like it's been a 10-day week already, Doc. Oh, no uh, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. So, yeah, yeah, everything, you know, it's a mile a minute. I'll be honest with you. I've got, you know, the struggle, uh, the writing struggle. So, so obviously, everybody knows I'm still working on the dissertation, but I've also got three other edits I need to make. But it's going to be good. I'm excited for this stuff to come out eventually, y'all. Yeah, so. Man, that's what's up, bro. More I, I want to shout out. And y'all, I've been in the lab. Been in oh, the yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, man. I can't wait to hear it and read it, man. I, I want to shout out uh, a couple of people, man. A guy named Caleb. I was on two podcasts today, man. Really dope. A guy named Caleb um, runs a church in, uh, his father runs a church in Georgia. And we were on talking about censoring Black voices. Um, so that was really dope. And then I want to shout out my brother, Pastor Rohan Samuels. Um, he's actually in Edmonton, Canada. What? So, um, yeah. So we just had a really dope conversation. I think he said it's coming out tomorrow. Um, he has a host of podcast called Candid Conversations. And we talk about, does a Black church need to become multi-ethnic or multicultural? Mm. Um, mm. And so it was, a gr- it was a great conversation. Very fascinating. I had fun. So shout out to uh, Brother Rohan. I don't know if he's watching or listening, but shout out to you, man. I, I look forward to sharing that podcast episode. Well, I know you're on the comes tip. out. I know you're on the tip that all churches should be multi-ethnic. So I mean, it's probably <laughs> <laughs> blocked, blocked, <laughs> deleted. Yo, nothing. but it's but it's a really good. It's a healthy conversation for us to have, and I think we touched on some points that hopefully will challenge people and make you think a little bit differently about the subject. So I'm trying to remember there, there was a couple of tweets I've put out lately that I wanted to, 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 to talk briefly about, cause we got another topic on, on, on deck. Okay. I haven't tweeted this yet, but I will, you know, was it, was it, uh, was it Tony Morrison? The function mm-hmm. racism is distraction. Yes, sir. Critical race theory is case in point. How much time and attention have we had to take up as black Christians in particular on this dumb controversy? Meanwhile, and we've been saying this from the jump. Meanwhile, not only is it a distraction from what we can do, it is also a distraction from the real issue of Christian nationalism. Right. So, there. OK, that's one point. That's not even the main point. What I what I put out there was. If. You are covering critical race theory and its opposition in the political realm. So there's these raft of bills being proposed to, you know, basically outlaw 
whatever they consider critical race theory, which is basically anything that has to do with racism, particularly in the systemic and institutional dimensions. If you're talking about the political pushback without talking about the religious, specifically the Christian roots of that pushback, you and I know this, but we saw this fomenting in the church years before it hit the White House or state government. Of course. And I've seen three recent articles on critical race, trying to explain critical race theory. None of them mention religion. Hmm. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm upset because in 2021, reporters, journalists should know better. They should. They should. There's not an excuse for it. Part of reporting on race in the United States is having a basic facility with religion particularly Christianity. And I'm upset because nobody argues that there's this linkage, what I call an unholy marriage between uh, 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 certain segments of U.S. Christianity and the modern day Republican Party. Right. Mm. This with Trump's evangelical cabinet. We saw this with the percentage of voters who keep voting for Republicans, even if they're denying truth, like who won the election. Right. So we know that's there. But but we only do the political analysis and we don't do, particularly in the CRT analysis, any sort of conversation on Christianity. So that's my soapbox. I actually think that was not even the tweet I was referring to. I have to go back and check. There was another yeah, one. Yeah, you got so many. You got so many Lucy's. You're like, you know, I'm <laughs> <out with it>. <laughs> right. <laughs> we got to go on deck. Or is there anything else on your mind? No, man, I actually think that's really interesting. I think uh, Dante was talking, Dante tweeted about this concept of, you know, the ideas of white supremacy and anti-blackness and anti-racism are bigger than CRT. Like CRT did not create them. And so what I was thinking is it's actually a really uh, clever and convenient tool to consolidate your, your quote unquote enemies, right? To consolidate the amount of things that you have to address. And rather than having to face them, we put a clever, you know, face or mask or enemy on what we perceive as something that infringes upon our right to to have the power that we've always had um, addressing white supremacy. And instead of that, we just say it's CRT. So we consolidate all the enemies and all the spaces. So think about it's it's in the church, it's in education, it's in um, legal theory, it's in the criminal justice system, it's in everything. And so everyone says it's CRT. And so instead of addressing individual problems within those spaces, which are all unique to themselves under the umbrella um, of white supremacy as it relates to you know racial justice, we just do a catch-all. It's a CRT. It's a junk drawer. Like talking about racism, saying something I don't like in the CRT drawer. That's it. It's it's an old tactic. You know, pick whatever label, communism, Marxism, liberal. For a while, it was social justice warrior. I want a T-shirt that says social justice warrior. I think that sounds cool. I don't don't know why that's a boogeyman. I like that. Um, You know, now, now. Now it's uh, it's critical race theory. So, but but here's the thing: the the only reason I bring it up is now because mainstream media has picked it up. Mm. So 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 Atlanta, uh, you know, outlets like the Atlantic. Uh, I think I saw something in Newsweek, which was a trash article 
there was um, several of it, you know, several national news outlets have now picked it up and are trying to do sort of, some of them are trying to do sort of a, a, a CRT apologetic to say, no, this is good and valuable, which also, by the way, puts us in an awkward position of, of looking like we're advocating for something we never signed up for. Hmm. You hear what I'm saying? So, so, yep. so time we try to say, look, this is not CRT or you're making CRT into something that's not, it puts us in the position of like being champions or ambassadors for this framework that we, we never adopted. We never were trying to promote. Right. And, and, and it's so, so it's just very interesting the position it puts us in. And meanwhile, we're yeah. not talking about Christian nationalism and how white evangelical Christians in particular continue to support. These are not just, can we, can we, can we recognize the moment right now? These are not just like policy positions that we disagree with. This is literally undermining democracy. Mm. And in 2022, if midterms go a certain way, there is no reason to believe that any Republican officials, particularly elected at the state and national level, will accept the outcome of a presidential election. There's, there's no reason to believe that. In our lifetimes, in the next one to three years, we could literally see the end of democracy as we know it. Oh, Jamar, you're yeah. free-mongering. I don't mean it's irrecoverable, but it's fragile. if it goes a certain way, it's fragile. It's not inevitable. And if it goes a certain way, the tactics they had to employ in the civil rights movement more than half a century ago are going to be all that's left to us. Yep. I mean, we're going to have to yep. do nonviolent protests. We're going to have to do direct action. We're going to have to do the boycotts and uh, the, the pickets. And if you thought 2020 was something, just wait till they don't honor the vote. Hmm. Just wait till you go in so confident that the fundamental kernel of the United States, that is a participatory democracy, is actually gone. That's why I keep saying to people, this is the civil rights movement of our day. And if we miss it now in 2021, if we let these laws pass and especially Christians and all that, we're going to be clawing for any sort of voice in mm -hmm the civic sphere and it's only going to get harder so anyway nah that's a sobering word bro wow i know you was going let man you charged up bro <laughs> i'm worried i'm concerned i'm very concerned i don't yeah. want to go through and here's the thing this isn't just jamar talking i remember at the grand opening of the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum, which is the only state-funded civil rights museum in the country. Sort of ironic that it's in Mississippi. Merle Evers, the widow of Medgar Evers, who was shot and killed in his driveway in Jackson, Mississippi, yeah. she spoke. And we were at, I was with Bo, um, we were at a, a, a press conference with her. And somebody asked her, this was still during the Trump administration, and they were like, you know, how does it compare to the civil rights movement. And she said, I never thought I would feel the same way as I did then, but I do now. Wow. And it, 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 it's not only her. I remember not long ago, a month or two, maybe six weeks, 
uh, uh, Bernice King, who's the youngest daughter of MLK, put out a an article. I believe it was Time Magazine. Don't quote me on that. With two other children of civil rights activists, and they were basically saying, "We're in the same struggle that our parents were in sixty or fifty years ago." Hmm. I'm just wondering, do you get the sense that folks get it, get it that we're here, that it's that crucial? No. No chance. They just passed, um, I want to, I think it's HB1 and SB90. I think I may be getting mixed up. I always get it mixed up in the Florida area. Um, um, And so they just passed that, which makes it, you know, now the protest then the type of protest that you can do is now limited, right? And is, you know, actually certain types of protests. If you're at, at a protest and someone riots or throws a bottle into a store window, now you're also part of a riot, wow. you know? So yeah. restricting the amount of peaceful protests that can be done. Um, and then voter rights, which is the exact same, it's almost the exact same legislation, copy and paste it across so many different states. And I don't think, I don't get a sense people are, are understand the the gravity of it. No, I don't (laughs) at all. I mean, the reality is we need to be protesting at the state level, which is a little bit, I won't say harder, but it's not as sort of like common knowledge, you know? It is harder. Yeah. So (laughs) it is. Like Arkansas and Mississippi, where I spend most of my time, they're as red as you can get. So Arkansas is interesting because we had Clinton come out of here 30 years ago now. Uh, He was governor. So they they have been, since then, more moderate Republican. Asa Hutchinson, who's the current governor, is up on term, term limits, and he's the last of what one could say is a moderate Republican governor. Mm -hmm. The next governor in Arkansas is most likely going to be Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Sure. Yeah, that's probable. Yeah. Yeah. In Mississippi, forget about it. But it's so it's so hard. And and the thing that they'll do in both Mississippi and Arkansas, they'll let districts be blue, but they'll restrict them so much that it's inconsequential. So there are a couple of blue spots in both Arkansas and Mississippi, mostly where the black people are. They're they're fine. Let them have it because the majority of the state is so red. It's not going to make a difference. You'll never get anything passed. You'll never hold the house. You'll never hold state legislature. That's already where it is. And it's so bad in Arkansas. I've told this story before. There's four stars. One star is above the word Arkansas. That star dating back to the Jim Crow era stands for the Confederacy. Each of the stars, Hmm. a, 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 a nation or an entity that ruled over the state of Arkansas. And that one star above it represents the Confederacy. There was a bill uh, to change that to represent Native Americans mm-hmm. from Arkansas. When I tell you that bill did not make it out of committee, hmm. it would not have changed the appearance of the flag one iota. It would have changed a paragraph or a sentence on a piece of paper. And it didn't. No. Still no. Still no, but 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 you've had some experience at the state level. What's that been like? Yeah, man. I, you know, 
I'll say like the local activist community is trying to sound alarms as it relates to legislation that's getting passed at the state level, which is fundamentally changing how we resist and how we protest and our rights fundamentally for peaceable assembly. It's, 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 it's going out the window, you know, uh, someone had referenced the vehicular manslaughter that if someone runs over someone who blocks the road, um, protesters who, who block the road in nonviolent disruption, that they could be run over and not be charged with vehicular manslaughter. And that is the exact thing that happened last year when the mayor came to a, a protest downtown in Pensacola, where, you know, hundreds of people were the nonviolent activist groups um, marched in the street and stood in the highway after what we call the three mile bridge to get out to the beach. Mm. Very busy. And they stood and blocked the, the way and did high stakes negotiation with the <laughs> mayor right there. Um, wow. you know, and they held him to account and got the advisory committee as a result of that. Right. 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 So it worked. Um, but in, in that mix, one driver basically kept driving through and, um, one of the protesters hopped on top of the car to avoid getting run. Um, and then the driver kind of sped up and he kind of had to roll off. Luckily he didn't sustain any lethal or life threatening injuries, but in, in according to this law, he could do that and it would be self-defense or, you know, whatever, stand your ground, you know, vehicular stand your ground, you know. Um, it's the vehicular equivalent of stand your ground. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so I think I think it is imperative that we have to count the and this is the whole purpose of what we're talking about tonight um, in just a brief, you know, 10 or 15 more minutes is, you know, counting the cost of what reconstruction means and what reconstruction will entail for us. And so I think it's going to cost us a little bit more than what we think. I think it's going to cost us a little bit more of the comfort than what we imagine. It's going to cost us risking a little bit more. And it's so funny. And and we were, I was, I typed this in the context of leave loud, but I think it's universal. And it reminded me of this story uh, that a pastor friend of mine told me, it, it's a little anecdote he told me years ago, probably five years ago. And he's he's a generation older than me. So I think he's Gen X or, um, or so. And around the time where I was hanging out with him, he's he was going through a building project. So he's him and his wife are building their home. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And he said, no, it's, it's the project from hell. You know, and I kind of tilted my head to the side. I'm like, man, you, you made it. You, you saved your money. You, you know, you're about to be an empty nester. You know, come on, man. You're building your home. <laughs> yeah, it's the dream, right? And he said, he said, Tyler, don't build. Don't ever build something without adequate reserves. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, the price that they quote you is not the cost you pay. Wow. Come on. He said the price that they tell you, how much, how much you quote the cost or they quote you for the price is not the cost you'll end up paying. You'll pay exponentially more than what you think. It will cost you. And he wasn't even trying to preach, but you know how preachers are. He wasn't <laughs> even trying to preach. They just think in sermons, yes. They think in illustrations. So 
as we talk about reconstruction and racial justice and leave loud and all these things, my question is, do we have adequate reserves to pay the cost that will be required of us? Do we? Is there enough in the tank? Are our souls healthy enough? Is there enough that we have prepared that we are prepared to pay the cost? Sir. Sir. You might think that it's not gonna cost you something, but you better factor it in. You better factor double it. It's gonna cost you more than what you think. You better be prepared to pay. Mm. And that's what I feel. I feel that democracy is so fragile and in our existence is so fragile and racial justice is not realized because so many of us talk about the price, but don't pay the cost. Give me an, an example. So many of us talk about wanting to see racial justice, but we do not participate in the work that will bring the justice that is necessary for us. We do not sacrifice the comfort and the connections and the proximity to power that would push away all of our wildest dreams Mm. and let us in the door but shut the door behind us really quickly. This is the essence of leave loud. Are you willing to leave so that others behind you do not think that because you are present, everything is okay. Oh, that's, ooh. Yeah. You got to pay the cost. And I think there's some, there's some people who, the question is not whether or not you should leave. The last thing that's making you hang on is, is the cost is too great. It could be literal, tangible. It could be figurative, intangible. But the cost. You're hitting so many levels. So so we have to recognize that part of us staying in these spaces is a signal to other Black people that these spaces are safer than they actually are. They see Tyler there or Jamar there, they think, oh, well, I can be there too. And the reality is going back to the payment. Our presence in these toxic white spaces is a down payment on a bill they never intend to pay. Hmm. The, 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 the white power structure will accept your token presence without ever the serious intention Love to that. pay their cost to make that a place of your flourishing. Meanwhile, your continued presence in those spaces is cueing other Black people to say, I can go there too. And you can. Oh, you can, but you're, you're in for a world of hurt. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. 
We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code 1-2022. That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. I was thinking about this, you know, sometimes we talk about how power is a mirage, like, you know, the power in these places, the justice is these in these places, and the equity in these spaces is a mirage, like we're reaching for the mirage. Sometimes we're the mirage. Ooh. We're the sometimes mirage. you're the mirage. <laughs> you need to you need to recognize you in that space isn't you aren't real. Or what you Dang. think Dang. is not real. We not, not even sipping nothing tonight. Dang. You might be. You might be the image of, look, he's smiling. That's another take on the magical Negro. Exactly. Yeah. How does magic work? Illusion. Hmm. We're the but, illusion of the race. Exactly. And, and, and let me and, and that's and that's the thing. So so here here's here's the thing that we have to acknowledge, and this is why this is why Lee Blout is so imperative to us, it's why we're we're talking about it so much, is that yeah, Sean talks about the iconography of change. I'm still in that. Um <laughs> you better mm. you better mm. quote, you better you better screenshot that because I'm still like, in somebody, the mess. This is why, bro. That's um, dope. But yeah, I, I feel like we miss that. And I feel like we're not willing to pay the cost for collective liberation. And what you're talking about is do not go to sleep while the rights that so many enjoy and are so fragile in this moment, even if we are, quote unquote, enjoying some rights, do not go to sleep and fall asleep and do not act as though you know, you're on automatic withdrawal. You know, to pay this, to pay this price. No, you have to physically make the payments. Yeah. You call the company, write the check, <laughs> send it in. It's a difference in how you pay, right? So if, if I set something on automatic withdrawal, that means I don't think about it. But if I don't, I have to, there are sequential steps that make me have to physically pay this, physically go to a store and pay it, physically go to a location and pay it, physically go to a business and pay it. And so I think so many of us have the automatic mindset when we need to have the intentionality to say, let me take inventory of how I'm doing. Let me take inventory of what I'm doing um, and making sure that I'm paying the cost that's necessary. So I think it's important to delineate that the, 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 the kind of payment is different for black and white people. 
So, so, so the cost to white people is your comfort. The cost to white people is that if you don't rock the boat, you can have a nice life materially speaking. You can remain, the status quo works for you. So, so the cost for white people is to lay down the status quo that works for them and pick up solidarity that's going to put them in a more difficult place. I think part of the cost, at least for black people, is the proximity to power. Yeah. Because if you comport yourself a certain way, you get access to resources, uh, particularly in a church setting, right? Like you can be on stage, you can get invited to the conference, you can be the guest preacher, you can, you know, be in on the elder meetings or whatever it might be, particularly if you're a male, right? Um, mm. But you're going to have to sacrifice that, which, which, you know, you keep saying over and over as a refrain that we need to hear, there's enough in our own communities, there's enough in the black church tradition. And, 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 and the cost is the flip side of the cost moving away from access to the resources that white power structures have. The other side of that is having faith and confidence enough that what black people have created and sustained and have somewhat ownership over is enough. Does that make any? It makes a ton of sense. Yeah, you're not doing your your, your church is not you're not your ministry is not inadequate because you don't have white approval. Say it again. <laughs> it's not inadequate because they didn't say, "Oh yeah, wow, you're doing awesome ministry." Let it go. Sacrifice that if you desire to be a pleaser of people. You shouldn't have become a servant of Christ. Mm. Don't please them. That's biblical. Don't please them. Um, and then and then before we go, I think it is important to say, you know, and this is something that Jamar and I have kind of been wrestling with. You know, another element of adequate reserves, man, is your soul, your soul health. You know. We're going to be talking about that in a couple of you know weeks on the podcast, but man, you can't do reconstruction work if your soul isn't healthy. You can do good work, but reconstruction work, generational work, is hard. You know, it's hard, and it requires something of our souls that, as you know, a pastor, I can't lie. And and not tell you about this cost that you know. A lot of people have been saying, "Well, how do I tell my leave loud story?" Um, yeah, I think that's a good question to ask. But when you talk about telling your leave loud story, I think the first thing is, man, get close to and pursue and get in proximity with healing. Um. And I think we really, uh, it's not just my desire to get us out of those spaces, but but to get those spaces out of us. Mm. Yeah. I don't want to just get out of Egypt. I want to get Egypt out of me. And you can't do that if your soul isn't 
if you're not at least pursuing a maintenance of your soul that heals from the pain, that heals from the trauma, that heals from the injury. Um, and I think many of us, so here's, this is funny, another analogy. I um, was watching a, a boxing fight. I know you're a boxer. So I was watching uh, boxing on Saturday night and the champion broke the challenger's uh, orbital bone, which is not, and, and so I was like, oh yeah, he, you know, you could clearly see something was wrong. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. You know, and they stopped the fight and everything. And uh, the champ said, I felt his, I felt the fist, you know, I felt his face crack under my fist. So I'm like, wow, that sounds pretty serious. But, you know, it looked bad and looked a little sunken, but, you know. And then I looked it up and a doctor was talking about it. And a doctor said he broke all four bones that hold the eye together. And so it's a quadrupod fracture. He said, you can't see it from the outside, but his face has endured more trauma than what I can even say. Wow. You can't see it from the outside. It just it looks bad. Yeah. But the, the construction of his face must change. Wow. Because of the trauma, and this way, literally what he said, the construction of his face has to change because of the trauma he endured. And again, it's a doctor. He didn't even know he was preaching. We talk so much about the image of God and how racism and white supremacy deface the image. They really are crushing the orbital bones. Sean Silly. <laughs> in the um, yes, he is. Great commentary, Sean. <laughs> this is great commentary. Sean, that dude. But that's what it means to deface the image of God. Mm. It means to damage it such that there is trauma to the, to the extent that we need Facial reconstruction in order to recognize the image of God in us once again. My, my, my. Ooh. And, and, and not look as bad on the outside. Stop. Stop it. Because we've learned to fight with, a broke, with broken bones. But if we stop to actually get healed, if we stop to actually get healed, that doctor would say you need reconstruction. <laughs> Stop the fight. Stop the fight. Go to the doctor. Get healed. All right. Let's that's, that's it. Going. You brought the boxing analogy. That Stop. Was, that was deep. Bro. Yes. Yes. That that's that I'm done. I'm done. Somebody write the transcript to this, please. I'm done. Let me let me say something because I, I thought I saw someone talk about um black churches too. Yeah, man, yeah, I saw somebody talk about that. And we're and we're definitely gonna be talking about kind of a black black church as well, um, and how we do this in black churches and because black churches are not magical and they, they're not without issues. They're deeply, oftentimes deeply problematic in certain areas. Um yeah. I, I don't think black churches are are 
are the answer to all things, right? This, right. This is not. This is not the the end all be all, right? We even in black churches, we don't hold them to standards of whiteness, right? So white evangelical standards are they judge a church some some white evangelicals judge church standards by um, outward metrics, tangible metrics, right? Um, of success or money or buildings or what have you. But we still judge it by the context and the, the the litmus test of hell, too, right? So Black churches are capable of injuring us as well. And they're also capable of taking um, Black leaders, Black churches are also capable of parroting white supremacy, right? Um, that's possible, right? So a lot of, and, and we, don't, we don't talk about that enough, we don't consider that. But they're also capable of parroting white supremacy and closing up to power and proximity as well. We're going to save this for the pod, but we got to remember to talk about how many black people end up in white church spaces who are refugees from their black church experience. Yeah, we got to save that for the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Misogynoir. We got to save that for the pod. Misogynoir, too. That's an amuse bouche. I just. Stop. This boy always says that word. We got a private bet. Every time he says this word, I got to take a shot. Okay? A shot of water. Okay, I'm holy. All right. I'm paper Bible saved. So it's a shot of water. But nah, man. Yo, this has been really uh, encouraging, man. I didn't even expect to get into all this, but here we are, man. I didn't I didn't know what was happening. So it's like, like hey, somebody write the transcript because we got to... We got, we got to take notes on this. We got to marinate on some of this. This man said the orbital bone. Get out of here. Look, bro. Hey, you, you, the image of God. And the... <laughs> we love y'all. Um, Next gotta... Tuesday, y'all. Behind yeah, the mic. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Same, same, same time, same channel, man. We, we love y'all, man. New episodes coming, everything. Um, uh, should I save this? I'm kidding. Y'all gonna be like, don't, 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 don't let it expire. Save it. No, I'm just messing with y'all. But definitely, definitely, I will, I will save this. And so you can share it. And just remember, everything that we do is for y'all. We love you. Black Christians, keep going. Don't quit. Don't give up. We're here with you, not by yourself. Peace, family.